0: Sometimes we think that God exists just to help us or just when we need him. I have a question for you. Have you ever made a promise, and then the second that the promise came out of your mouth, you realized, oops, I shouldn't have said that? Have you ever made a promise like that? Now, it happens to me all the time because... uh, I get accosted by my kids. I got three of them. And they're constantly, Papa this and Papa that. And, and it's kind of hard to keep. You got your head on a swivel. And, then he's, and you're like, okay, yes, okay, yes. And then they know you're under siege, so they throw one in there. <laughs> oh, Papa, I want water. I want this. And you're like, okay, yes, okay, yes. And they go, we want to go to Legoland. And you're like, okay, yes. And then you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but then they're like, okay, good. But just to make sure, they'll say, you promise? Yes, I promise. And then you go, oh wait a second, what did I just get myself into? Maybe that's happened to you where you make a promise about something and then suddenly, the moment it comes out of your mouth, you realize, I don't think I can keep that promise. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you're the kind of person that takes promises lightly and uses the I promise expression just to get out of any mess possible. You're never going to do this again, I promise. But you don't really mean that. You know, when... uh, When the cop pulls you over and you're like, I promise, Mr. Officer, sir, I'm never going to run a stop sign again. I promise. Because you're just trying to get out of ticket. I promise. Are you the kind of person that uses the promise as a simple way of getting past this situation? How difficult it is, is it for you to keep your promises? I wonder about promises because in the story that we're going to read today, Someone makes a promise, more than a promise, a vow. Now, we don't normally use the expression vow in, in our common speak. I vow to you. That sounds a little kind of old-fashioned. Uh, the only time you might hear a vow might be in your or on your wedding day or where you are watching a wedding, where the wedding vows are being read. And hopefully that's not a time when you vow and suddenly say, Oops, I don't think I can keep that promise. Although many people make those vows and yet don't keep those promises. But in the story that we're going to read today, someone makes a vow, which is a a weighty form of a promise. And as we think about it, I want you to consider how difficult it might be for you to keep your promise. If you've got a Bible, please uh, turn it open to the book of 1 Samuel. We're in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, after the first five books, there's a few more others. And then we find 1 Samuel. First Samuel is part of a large narrative about the people of God and about this, this, this book, specifically about a person. His name is Samuel. It's no secret. It's, it's, it's in the book. But we're going to start at chapter 1, and we're going to read the story of a promise. If you've brought a Bible, if you didn't, there's one in the pew in front of you. It would be helpful to you to, to follow along or pull it up on your iPhone or some other smartphone if you've got it. 1 Samuel, chapter 1. We're going to read quickly, so follow along with me. There once was a certain man from Ramathain, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. The Bible begins to tell us the story about a man... His name was Elkanah, and, and, and the Bible says here that he was living uh, in, in the tribe of Eph, Ephraim, but he was not really an Ephraimite. He was actually a descendant of Levites. So I'll explain it to you later, but for the moment, we just need to know that this was a man who had two wives. The Bible says the first one was called Hannah, a very beautiful name and really in fashion these days. There are a lot of kids, even um, some amongst us whose names are Hannah. And the second one was Penina, not a very common name. There might be some Penelopes or some Pennies, but no Peninas, And there's a reason for that, as we'll see in the story. And the Bible tells us that she had children, but Anna had none. Now, in this part of the world, in this time in, in, in history... Uh, It was not uncommon to have multiple wives, although researchers will tell us that not everyone did because, as we have learned from studying the Bible, and as you'll see in just a moment, it's probably not a good idea to have more than one. Amen? Amen? You guys better say amen. You guys are married out there. It might sound like something that's fun, but trust me, it wasn't very much fun for Elkanah. In fact, the Bible says here that Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. It's quite possible that he had married Hannah as his first wife, but she could not bear children. And in their culture and in their time, the only way to essentially grow your family and grow your uh, empire, if you will, or your resources, was to have children, especially boys, who could then carry on your name and would inherit your goods and your family. And because Hannah had none, Scholars say it's possible that Elkanah married Peninnah so that she could bear him some children. And she did. And the Bible tells us that year after year, this man, verse 3 here, chapter 1, verse 3, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Elkanah was a descendant of the Levites. He was a Levite. If you know anything about Israelite history, of all the tribes, one tribe in particular, God had set aside, the tribe of Levi, to be priests. Pastors, in our modern-day vernacular, these would be the families whose job was to care of the temple and to, and to sacrifice there and to lead the church in spiritual disciplines and practices. But at the time we are meeting him here, the Israelites had kind of walked away from God, and, and temples were not being uh, built, and priests were not being employed. When the people of Israel began to settle in the land that God had given them, God said to this tribe, the Danites, you guys live over there, the Ephraimites live over there, the people of Gad live over there. And he said, but the Levites I'm sending all over. So the Levites were supposed to have a little spot of land in each tribe. And there they would teach the people about God and keep the spiritual practices of coming together for worship and praising God and sacrificing God. But what happened is when the Ephraimites and the Danites and and they all began to spread, they forgot God's teaching and it did not make place for the Levites. And because there were no Levites, read there are no pastors or priests in their communities, it was easy for them to forget about God. And they began to absorb the religious practices of the neighbors, the Canaanites. And so it happens that Elkanah would have been a priest, except he had no church. So he lived among the the, the tribe of Ephraim, but he had no church. He would have been a pastor, if you will, but there was no temple. The Bible tells us that he would keep the spirit of God alive in his family because each and every year he would follow the three special um, holidays, the spiritual holidays, and in particular the one of interest to us is Passover, where he would go and take his family up to a temple and he would offer a special sacrifice there. in gratitude to God for what God had done for his people long ago. That's how the story goes. And the Bible tells us that he would go up there whenever the day came, and he would sacrifice, and then he would give portions of the meat of the animals to sacrifice to Peninnah, his wife, and for peace for all their children. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion as a symbol that he loved her and that he loved her as if she had given him a child. Thus, the double portion. But the Bible tells us here, listen here, um, in verse 6, uh, because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Verse 7. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival, that's Peninnah, the other wife, would keep provoking her until she would cry and not eat. So gentlemen, those of you who are thinking, oh, multiple wives, sounds like a great idea. Uh, as you can see, <laughs> it's always going to create trouble. The Bible says here that The second wife, who could have children, would keep teasing the first wife and say, I don't know, nanny, 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 I have kids, and you, I don't know, how would you provoke somebody uh, like that? But the Bible tells her, well, you 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 know what's true, women would know this, you have a way of humiliating other women. It's a special skill cultivated in the junior high years. Where with just one look, one smirk, one raise of the eyebrow, one, hmm, you can make someone else feel, don't act surprised, I've been watching you all, you know what I'm talking about. Us guys, we're oblivious to that kind of stuff. As you'll see, Alcana was oblivious too. But women are not. They have a way, and this is important, they have a way of putting each other down. One of the most fascinating things in our particular culture is though we are privileged, our young women are growing up with a very challenged sense of self-esteem. You know why? Not because guys love them less, but because girls put them down. Listen, I'm being honest with you. Moms in the congregation and dads, We need to protect our young women. We need to teach them not to tear each other down. We need to help them see their true beauty. We talked a few weeks ago when we were talking about financial matters as to why women spent the bulk of their money on beauty products and accessories. Men don't do that, except in Korea. But that's another story for another time. (laughs) Men instead spend on, remember we talked about this, on, on diversions, sporting events, things that take their mind off, their lack of purpose. But why do women spend so much time, money, and energy on trying to build up their beauty, their exterior, because it's tied to their self-worth, sometimes in an unhealthy way. And where did that come from? It comes from this cultural idea. But I'm telling you, I'm watching it take place. It's not the guys are putting you down. It's that women are putting each other down. And in this particular case, Penina was taking it out on Hannah. And really provoking her to the point where she would cry and cry and would stop eating. Literally go on a hunger strike. And verse 8, and Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why don't you eat something? Why are you so depressed? And then he would say, The smartest thing of all, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And of course, the ladies would say, get over yourself. (laughs) This is us guys. Sometimes we're clueless. We don't understand. Why are you crying? So what if you don't have any kids? Don't I mean more? And Hannah says, get away from me. Maybe he didn't understand what it was like to be under the constant oppression of her rival. To be under the constant thumb of someone who made her feel worthless, undeserving, inadequate. But I suspect you might know what that feels like. I suspect especially those of you that are women in our congregation, whether you're in the throes of junior high or sometime later, understand. My wife uh, works as a a doctor and... um, for a number of years she was in residency, and uh, although there are a lot more women in the medical profession, it's still, you know, a, a male-dominated kind of profession as opposed to nursing, which is a little bit in reverse. And she would come home uh, with stories about days in the hospital and, and, and things like that. And what I always found interesting was the way she would tell me the interaction between her and the, either the other doctors or the other medical professionals. And she found it much easier, those of you that are in that field will let me know if, if, if her experience was way off. She found it much easier to relate to men, whether they were superiors or, or, or someone that would take orders from her. And much more difficult to relate to women, where they were either superiors or people that would take orders from her. There's, there's another layer of battle going on between the women that us guys are oblivious to. <laughs> And we walk into a room, and she'll say, did you see that? I was like, what? What? We don't know. Did you see the look she gave me? What? Am I right, guys? So I suspect that some of you understand what it's like, either at work or sometimes at home, perhaps by a mother-in-law. Don't say amen. Don't just, just go, mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of you might understand what it's like to be put down and feel ashamed and unworthy. And, and and the Bible tells us here that Elkanah was oblivious to it. He would just see her crying every time. The Bible says it happened year after year after year. And Elkanah say, Aren't I enough? Isn't my love all that you need? Yes, and the women would laugh. We're delusional. That's the guy thing. And so the Bible tells us here that she was so upset. Once, verse 9, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. She couldn't take it no more. Everyone was laughing and drinking, and Peninnah was shooting her glances when she would be eating. And she'd be hugging her children and stuff like that. And, and, and Hannah stood up and she, she left the, the the dinner table, and the Bible tells us that Eli was the priest who was sitting by the by the uh, by the doorstop of the Lord's temple in a chair. Verse ten. Look at this with me, if you would. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. That's an important phrase, in bitterness of soul. I I know it can't be translated in the way that it would be written, but think about that, bitterness of soul. It's not just, I'm sad. It's not just, boo-hoo, poor me. It's not just self-pity. The Bible describes what she's feeling as bitterness of soul. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation or been to that place, Where it hurts so bad, the tears just aren't enough. Where the brokenness is from deep down inside. And that's where Hannah was. And she began to weep out loud and began to pray to the Lord. Verse 11. And as she was weeping, she made a vow, a promise, and she said, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. And then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She was weeping and crying, and I'm sure she'd been doing this for quite some time. But on this particular occasion, on, in bitterness of soul, when she had finally reached a place she could no longer stand, she felt like there's, she was just going to fall apart, she cried out and made a promise. Maybe a promise that she had been unwilling to make in the past, because she says, oh God, please, look at me. Look at how miserable I am. And if you would just give me a son... I promise I'll give him right back to you for all the days of his life. What a strange promise. What a strange vow. She doesn't say, if you give me a son, I will be forever grateful. If you give me a son, you finally get this this crazy woman off my back because I'm tired of being second place here. If you give me a son, I would say, "Yay, God, you finally did it. What were you waiting for? She says, if you give me a son... I will give him back to you all the days of his life. And I think, I think that the second the words came out of her mouth, there must have been something that kind of twinged. I think that'd be a difficult promise to keep, don't you? Especially if that's the one thing that is tormenting you day and night. The fact that she couldn't have any kids. Maybe it's easier to promise things when you've got nothing to lose. I've thought about that too. Maybe you can promise whatever, because you, you think it's never going to happen. Oh, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you, because it's never going to happen. I'm sure there are times when you do that as well. Perhaps when you've come into the sanctuary, or in your prayer time with God, and you said, God, help me out of this mess. I don't think you can do it. But if you do, I'll start going to church again on a regular basis, I promise. And poof, there it goes, Right? If you get me out of this mess, I promise I will be tithing faithfully, Lord. And then when you're out of the mess, you're like, did I really say that? Did I say tithe? How do you say one-twentieth? Maybe it's easier to promise when you've got nothing to lose. And, and a cynic would look here and would say, look at Hannah. She promises to give God back this son because he didn't have one. And she hasn't been able to. It's not going to happen. But in bitterness of soul, Hannah looks up to God and says, don't forget me, God. Give me a son. And I will give him to you for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. His hair is going to be long. And as she, verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest who was nearby, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, reading her head, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. She was praying silently, aloud, praying to God. And he looked at her and thought she was drunk. And he said, oh, woman, how long are you going to keep getting lit up? Why don't you stop drinking? Get rid of your wine. He knew something about that. Because we'll soon see. His kids, you know, like to be inebriated from time to time. And he says, "Look, woman, this is not the place for you to be. You know, this way. Put away your wine drink. Good counsel, by the way. Get rid of your wine." But Hannah said, "No, no, no. I'm not drunk. I'm a woman." Verse fifteen, who am deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. They have the same effect. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. A wicked woman. I have been praying to her out of my great anguish and grief. Eli said, "Oh, I thought you were drunk." She says, "No, I am deeply troubled." And Eli says, "Well, go in peace. May God give you what you've asked him." And then she says, "This. May your servant find favor in your eyes." She prayed and made this significant promise. When there was no evidence that God would actually do anything on her behalf. But then she adds this last little bit, which is where I want you to think about. She says, may your servant find favor in your eyes. See, here's what I think. I think that sometimes we come to God and we ask him for a favor. We'll say, God, I'm doing this thing. I just need a little extra push from you. So can you do me a favor? Can you do me a solid? Can you hook me up? I promise I'll get you back when I have the money, the time. I'll serve you whenever I get to it. Can you do me a favor? And we think that essentially God is there to simply pitch in to whatever we're doing, like, like, a, like a celestial ATM. Whenever you need it, you swipe. you got a debit card on it. But she doesn't ask God for a favor. She asks for favor. It's very different. See, a favor is like an inconvenience, something that you might be asked to do that, Oh, it will just make someone's life a little easier. She asks for favor. She asks that God would look upon her with favor. That he would act on her behalf. And in particular, in response to the promise that he would do something for her that she is completely incapable of doing on her own. And something that would deliver her from this moment and this time of utter anguish and bitterness. She asks God to save her. Do you see the difference? You see the difference? I want you to think about it because some of you guys think spirituality is just about asking God for a favor. God, I just need a little help. I need a a little money. I need a little blessing. I need a little this, a little that, a little grease for my plans. But that's not who God is. Finally, in this moment of utter bitterness and trouble and heartbreak, She asks God to save her. And quite possibly, that's maybe what you need to do. Maybe you are in situations and challenges that you've been trying to fix on your own, trying to deal with people, uh, work issues, and you just want a little favor from God, but God actually wants to save you completely. He is, after all, Savior, capable of doing more than just little favors, capable of moving mountains if necessary, capable of giving you impossible dreams, capable of building thousands of churches in a place where there is great need, capable of giving people the spirit to build again where fire has destroyed, capable of giving people the ability to dream when others have put them down so much so that they have no self-esteem, capable of giving us new life even after we were already dead. God doesn't want to just do you a favor. He wants to hold you in favor. He wants to bless you. The Bible says there in Jeremiah 29, he has plans for you, plans for a hope and a future. He's got big ideas for you. He doesn't want you to be oppressed. And and pressed down by the people right around you. He doesn't want you to be limited by your small resources. He doesn't want you to be limited because you don't come from the right place or the right family. He doesn't want you to feel bad about yourself because other people think less of you. God has plans. He's got dreams. He's got hope for you. He wants to save you from this stuff. He wants to set you up on a high place. And Hannah finally comes to that place. And maybe you are there too. Where the brokenness has finally led you to understand that nobody can save you except for him. Elkanah wasn't going to be able to rescue her from this. He thought he could. She couldn't think her way out of this sadness and depression. could not escape Peninnah. But God is mighty to save. And he can do it for you. And you've got to come and ask for his favor. As the band comes up here to sing our last song, I want you to think about the one thing that you are being challenged with right now. It may be like her. It might be a personal relationship thing. It might be a financial difficulty. I know that you are going through difficult stuff because I know you're like me, constantly challenged by fear, self-doubt, and uncertainty. But the God of the universe is already on your side. He already wants to do good things for you. You don't have to twist his arm. But when he does... When His favor comes upon you and blesses you, then I also want you to remember the promises you're making today. That if God is good to you, if God does bless you, you come back and praise His name. You come back and say these words and proclaim it. For wherever you go and proclaim God's grace, there it becomes multiplied in your homes, in your families, at your places of employment in your communities. God is indeed mighty to save.